still is weird to hear Brad sing that high, but <laughs> it was awesome. That first song was phenomenal. God, I'm so excited to hear a little more rock and roll this morning. <clears throat> Brad hates that, like you talk about his songs and he's always embarrassed. All right, well, good morning. I'm glad that uh, we got someone showing up for the second service, too. I wasn't sure how this is all going to kind of lay itself out because every time we've shifted from, uh, hey, let's leave our old church to go start a church in the living room to let's go into the garage now because we've got more than five people and let's go into the cafeteria and let's go. And so it's always um, feels odd to make those shifts, but they're necessary and uh, uh, fruitful and, and risky, but exciting at the same time. So thank you for showing up, 1045. Um, today we're going through Exodus chapter two. And so if you'd open up there, we're going to go through the first 10 verses. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles out on the table and you certainly are welcome to take one and keep one and uh, give it away if you want. Today we're talking about uh, really tools in many sense uh, of the word. It seems like as a, as a man, um, my dad was the kind of guy that always fixed things and never hired anybody to fix anything. And so that's how I learned to do stuff was I would try to fix everything even if I didn't know how to fix it. I figured you take it apart, there's screws there, just you know open it up and maybe you could fix it somehow. So I did, and for me, my tools, I never really used the tool for the right job, so I never had the tool, the right tool for the right job, and so I would use a hammer for just about everything, and hit it, and if it worked, then I figured, hey, I fixed it, honey, and then if that didn't work, I'd use a bigger hammer, and I would smash it harder, and then typically I would have to fix it from my breaking it with duct tape or something like that, and it would work eventually, and so I have done the strangest concoctions you can think about to fix things that are probably very um, dangerous and uh, and usually just not the correct way. But that's how I, I did things. One of my, my kind of mentors, if you will, was MacGyver. You probably remember MacGyver. I loved MacGyver. It was the guy that, you know, said, oh, I'm not going to use guns to kill anybody. And then he would take a matchstick and a gum wrapper and build a bomb to kill everybody. And it was like, that's cool. So I really liked MacGyver. And this whole um, kind of study for me has, has brought up a story um, that you'll kind of get a little insight into to me, and that is that uh, I'm kind of a what they would call a backwoods medicine kind of guy, where I don't like I don't like the doctor, I don't like anything you get to sit there for long periods of time and people touch you, you know, for whatever reason. And the doctor is one of those things. The dentist, the haircutter, hate them all. I'm sure they're all wonderful people, but I don't like to sit there. I get fidgety, so. I don't like to go to the doctor. I'm typically a pretty healthy guy, and so I don't have to go to the doctor. Well, when I was uh, uh, coaching soccer with the uh, boys here at the high school uh, many moons ago, um, I used to think, and I was, you know, in the early 20s, I thought that I was still 18. And as you get closer, for some reason, once you hit 30, I know there are people like, oh, 30 is still young. But, like, when you hit 30, things change. Lots of things change. You know, pants get tighter, and just things are changing. So I was uh, still thinking I was 18. It wasn't working out. Okay, I would, you know, I was a pretty good soccer player, played through college, and so when we'd play with them, I'm like, dude, you guys have got nothing on me. I'm like, you know, do my little moves, and and they would, you know, be awestruck with just the glory that an old man could do that. And for a while, it was fine, but then eventually, you're just not 18 anymore, and you're running alongside them, and your body's like, what are you doing? And my mind's like, come on, just keep going, we'll get it. And you're just wiping out and throwing up and just bad stuff. So. What happened was they decided to play rugby for a soccer practice, which playing rugby with 18-year-old kids, well, 16, 18-year-old kids, just dumb. So I decided to do it, though, because 
I was manly, and I couldn't say, like, no, kids, I'm not going to play, because then you're old. And I don't want to be old, so I'm, okay, yeah, no problem, guys. And so I was shoving them down because I was bigger than them, and it was easy to kind of, you know, they were, some of them were little, you could, like, fart and knock them over. So it was, like, you know, easy to knock guys over. So playing rugby was fun, and so we're playing, and we're doing the scrum, because we didn't even know the rules. We're just kind of hitting each other and, you know, trying to get the ball across the line. And someone throws this ball, it was a football, and I caught it, but it felt really weird, like when you catch a basketball and jam your finger. But I kept running and thinking, no big deal, and, and scored, of course. I don't remember if I scored, but I'm going to go with that story because it sounds like, you know, Dudley. So I scored, and we were going to give the ball to another guy. And I went to give it to him, and I remember feeling something really weird on my finger. I was like, well, I just jammed it. So I was playing with it. I looked down, and my finger was hanging down just the tip of it, like this. And I just went to lift it, and nothing was happening. And I was like, that's really weird. And so I was, you know, I have, like, dislocated my fingers before, so I'm yanking on it, you know, trying to, like, pop it back into place or whatever, and nothing's happening. And I was like, that's weird. And I started getting really scared. Like, you know, what if it's like this forever? And I go to, into a drawer to get a knife or something, and you're hitting it. I mean, these are the thoughts that are going through my mind that go through everyone's mind. So my coach, or not my coach, the coach I was coaching with said, why don't you go talk to the trainer? Oh, yeah. So I go talk to the trainer, and I say, what do you think? And she's like, that's really weird. She's like, but you know, that looks like this a thing called carpet finger, which a lot of carpet installers get when they're jamming the carpet and they jam their fingers. And she said, there's a tendon on the very tip of your, you know, each knuckle, and looks like you might have snapped that tendon. I was like, well, it doesn't really hurt, though. It's just, I can't lift it. She's like, you should probably go to the doctor. It's like, beep, beep, beep. No, I'm not going to the doctor. So what I do, I went to Dr. Internet. And I go click on the Internet. Carpet finger, you know, finger injuries. And I'm going through, and I find all these, like, x-rays, like, well, it could be a level four injury. And they show, like, the bone. I'm like, ah, probably it's not it. And so then I find this one that I think is it. Not really sure, but go to the doctor or fix it yourself. Let's go fix it yourself. So it says you need to splint it and do all these things for eight weeks. Okay, eight weeks. So what I do, I went and ate two popsicles, took the popsicle sticks, put them on the side, took paper clips on the other side, and then bound it with something, I can't remember. And then I took masking tape, because I didn't have any duct tape, and I masked up, so it was this big mess of stuff on my finger for six weeks. Because I was like, I'm not going to the doctor, who's going to pay, you know, some amount of money, and they're going to do the exact same thing. So, six weeks later, I would actually gone to the doctor in between that time, and I was kind of hiding my hand like this. And the doctor said, what? What is that? I said, what's what? He said, what's that, that thing on your finger? I said, oh, I just, you know, blah, blah, blah. She's like, you don't do that. You need to let me act. I'm like, no, I'm not x-raying that. That's going to be this amount of money. Forget it. Six weeks, I'll check with you. If it's still there, it's still there. No harm done. Six weeks later, took it off. Good as new, okay? Good as new. So, like, I don't need the doctor for anything. Unless I get, like, some really terrible growth on my face, I'm not going to the doctor but for me, I like to find the right, the, the wrong tools for the right job, okay? And that was a beautiful example of how I do that. And I do that with all kinds of stuff. You need to fix something? Hey, just use this. What's that? I don't know, but we'll make it work. And so the story, though, of God in this, this Exodus uh, journey is in this chaotic, crazy, most broken situation you can possibly think of, don't have the right tool for the right job, but he uses these tools that I would never use, well, maybe I would because I'm weird like that, but that tools that we would never use to fix this problem and to go through the story of redemption in the most amazing way. And that's, I think, why the New Testament calls the cross of Jesus Christ such foolishness. Because, really, 
If you look back, you go, this is crazy. This is crazy. And so Exodus is simply a picture of that. And today we're going through the, the portion of Exodus that probably most people, Christian or non, have heard. And that's baby Moses in the Nile. And I think sometimes we just read through it. And I've learned, as I've studied this week, that I haven't really learned everything there is to learn from it. And really more, I haven't learned everything there is to learn about me and about what God is doing with me. And so I hope today that he, he does that. But as he goes through the story, he uses these tools in the most unlikely way, these little moments of heroism, we'll call them, because we know God is the hero, not Moses. Not even, God is the hero here. But he uses these tools and these heroes that you don't expect. Last week it was two midwives. Two midwives he used to preserve hundreds of babies. Today he uses three other ladies. He uses the mom of Moses, he uses the daughter, uh, one of the daughter, his sister, Miriam, and he uses this pagan princess, all as part of his plan. And that's what God is all about in terms of using these, these, these people. And throughout the whole Bible, you have him using, you know, believers, non-believers, you have him using peasants and kings, you have him using, you know, moments of joy and laughter and moments of pain and suffering, you have him using fathers that are totally messed up and fathers that are eh, somewhat okay. You have them using kids. You have them using animals. He uses whatever tool he needs to use to fulfill his plan and get these people, you and I, saved because we can't save ourselves. And it's beautiful and yet crazy at the same time. And so um, let's read Exodus chapter 2. We're going to see the impossible kind of fix that these people are in. And that's just a picture of our own fix, if you will. And my kind of whole point of telling you this is that we have to recognize that we don't have the tools, that God uses us as tools, and he is the ultimate mechanic that can fix anything with anything. And maybe perhaps the ultimate MacGyver, but you'd probably be uh, offended if I called him that. So here we go. We'll start in verse 22 of chapter 1 so you get a little bit of context and to talk about it. Exodus chapter 2 is where we're going. But verse 22 says... When his uh, infanticide, basically, destruction didn't work because the midwives, by God's grace, preserved the babies, um, he went into a national policy of genocide. And here's what happens in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Which is pretty brutal. A command for all people to start throwing babies in the Nile. Verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she took from, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at the distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. 
Now, the first uh, ten verses here of chapter 2 have to be put in the context of the backdrop because what's happening is this amazing, you know, light in the middle of darkness. This child is preserved and born into this, into this dark, really just terrible, horrible time. And we kind of remember, or maybe you remember when your children are born, you have the screams of the baby, the crying, you know, I don't think they spank the babies anymore, but I imagine the doctor was going to hold the baby upside down and spank, because that's what I was told. Didn't really happen, the baby's crying, at least my kids were screaming as soon as their head popped out. So they're screaming, they're crying, but it's a cry of joy, it's a cry of life, it's a cry of just, you know, this, this is beautiful. But in the midst of this darkness, the cry of the baby is, you're muffling that baby's mouth. Because you are hearing screams of children during this time. But it's the screams of the death squads coming around. The screams of the moms. The screams of the dads. The screams of the helpless parents taking the child who is probably screaming and taking him and throwing him into the river. It is dark as dark can be. But there's still this moment of grace. There's this beauty of this light that's happening in the midst of this darkness that I think sometimes in the midst of the screams we fail to see. And it's understandable that we fail to see it sometimes. But it starts off in chapter 2 saying this man, uh, or a man that was a Levite, who had married a Levite, gave birth to the son. And they make a point to, to say that they're Levites. They don't give it the names. They do that several chapters later. But they make a point of who their family lineage is. And Levi, if you don't know, first of all, we all come from families, okay? And every family is different. Some, we don't choose the family that we really would go into. We wish we could. Everyone has that family like next door, like, I wish I was in that family because they get like, you know, apple pie every, you know, lunch day or whatever. Or their mom always puts the you know, most wonderful things in their lunch. I, I you know, make my own lunch and it was great and nice, but I was never the kid that got like the Fritos chips and the Capri Sun and all that stuff. It was like... Dude, I want to be in his family, okay? So I understand everyone's got their own family. Everyone has their own parents, for good or bad. We have our own experiences. We have our own traditions as families. We even have, and this is kind of weird, we even have our own smells as families, if you think about it, okay? Everyone's got their own smell. So what everyone likes, they'll smell their own pillow, okay? They take their own pillow. Why? Because it smells like me, okay? I don't want to smell anyone else. So it's not stinky, it's just a smell. So everyone's got a family, and that family you come into shapes you and molds you and makes you into who you are in many ways, whether you want to or not, okay? So what happens sometimes as a parent, you see this, there's stuff that I go, I'm never going to do what my dad did this. I'm never going to do what my mom said. Next thing you know, I'm sitting with my son doing exactly what my dad did to me or said to me or whatever. I'm like, where did, not for bad necessarily. Like, where did that come from? How we deal with conflict. You know, if you're the kind of person that like clams up and doesn't say anything, it's probably because your dad did that. He didn't say anything. And so we start to see how all of these kind of fingerprints are left from who we're raised with. And so the same is with Moses. And it's important that we understand who Levi was. Levi was the third son of Jacob and Leah, and he was the son, or his name comes from the idea or the word meaning attached. Because Leah, who was not loved by Jacob, he loved Rachel. Leah was the one who was desperately trying to get the affections of her husband because he wasn't giving them to her. And so she gives birth to a third son, calls him attached, because she hopes that her husband will now be attached to her and love her because she's given him three sons and Rachel's given him none. And so Levi, we don't know much about him, but we learn a very interesting story about him that I really like Levi and I kind of dislike Levi, and we'll see what you think. In Genesis 34, if you read the story of Levi, Jacob also had a daughter named Dinah. 
And I've tried to get, I think we should call Candace's band Dinah's Brothers, Dinah and her brothers, because it's a great story, kind of dark story, but a great story nonetheless. Dinah is the daughter of Jacob. And after Jacob meets Esau, after 20 years of seeing him, Dinah, um, and there's like this in-between story about Dinah, and Dinah uh, basically is probably a beautiful woman, and she, they're going by a place called Shechem, and there's a guy there, basically the son of the prince of Shechem, who, named Hammer, who basically sees Dinah, is like, I got the hots for her, he seduces her, and he ends up sleeping with her. Does he rape her? It's unclear, but they have sexual relations in some way, which is immoral, wrong in every stretch of the imagination, because they are not married, and not only that, she's not Hebrew. She's not part of their people. And so, Jacob finds out about this, and it's a wonderful, if you're a brother and you've got sisters, it's the kind of story that you need to read, okay? And what happens is Jacob finds out about this, and it's great because he says, says, Jacob kept his peace until the boys came home. He's like, I'm going to hold it in because when my 12 boys get here, we're going to town. So the boys come in, and Jacob is, you're not going to believe what happened to your sister. And he tells them, and the boys are ticked. Ticked like brothers should be. Okay? Ticked like my sons should be. I'm training them as best I can to not only not hit women, because with a daughter who like wants to wrestle all the time, it's really hard. So don't hit women, but you must protect them. You must take care of them. Okay? How I do that? Well, when they don't, I inflict pain as they're inflicting pain on her. So like, hey, Jedi Knights, now you are the dark side, and I am the good side. So that kind of thing, okay? So the fact is, their brothers get ticked, and Hammer, who is the father of this guy who had relations with Dinah, you know those names? He comes to Jacob and says, hey, look, my son really loves your daughter. You can imagine what Jacob's thinking. Yeah, well, if he loved her, he probably would have done what he did, but whatever. I want him to marry her. And Jacob... And his brothers say, hmm, I don't know about that. Now remember, Jacob's a deceiver, as is all his family. So the 12 boys go, hmm, okay. Well, here's what uh, we'll do. I should say 11 boys, because Joe's not there. So here you go. Here's what we should do. Um, we are, uh, we'll go ahead and let her marry um, her, but you're going to have to give us a really good bride price. Name it. What do you want? Whatever. He's like, well, we can't have our sister marry someone who's not circumcised. So what you're going to have to do is circumcise all of your males. And that will be enough right price for us to be willing to marry or let her marry you. Okay, no problem. So he does. He goes and circumcises all the young and the old. And you can imagine how fun and painful that was. Okay? And so, enter Levi and his brother Simeon. And I believe Genesis 34, it says this. On the third day, when they were sore... Okay? Sore from what? From the circumcision. Okay? So three days after it, the guys are hobbling around, not real active, able to do much. When they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it fell secure and killed all the males. And they killed Hammer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Levi and Simeon take care of business in a way that's not godly, but they still took care of business and went and wiped out all the males. Killed them all. Why? Because he touched our sister. So at some level you're like, dang, that's really pretty cool. But on the other level, 
Later, Levi is actually condemned by Jacob right before he dies and cursed because of his violent nature. Now, the thing about that is God never says it's wrong to be angry. We see Jesus who's angry. He gets angry. What's wrong is when you act in a sinful way on that anger. And that's what Levi did. And so we see the family lineage, if you will, fingerprinted all over Moses. Moses is not some heroic wonderful guy, okay? He is a broken guy just like Abraham before him, and he is an angry guy. In fact, next week you see that he basically impulsively, he's about 40 years old at the time, sees the Hebrew slaves getting beaten, is like, yeah, and he kills the guy. Doesn't think about the consequences. His anger gets the best of him. You see that with Moses, but you also see the positive side of Levi. The positive side of Levi and his lineage, if you will, is that when Moses, later on, you see um, the blessing that comes from Levi and the faith that's still in Levi. When Moses actually gets the tablets on top of the on Mount Sinai, and God takes his finger and goes, and carves these two sets of Ten Commandments. When he comes down, in the meantime of him doing that, Aaron has built a golden calf. You probably are familiar with that part of the story. They said, people said, hey, we want to worship something. Moses ain't coming down. We think he's dead. And so he said, well, give me your earrings. When he should have said, no, be faithful. Give me your earrings. We'll make a golden calf. So they do. Moses comes down. They're like, hey, hey great moving cow. You know, and he comes down and he's like, what in tarnation are you doing? And he is ticked. He is fuming. Okay? He's been up on the mountain for a long time. Hasn't had a bite to eat. He's upset. And he takes the Ten Commandments and he crushes them. Now, God never told him to do that. He was angry. He was impulsive. And it goes further. And you see him, uh, he, he gets down and he says, all right, that's it. And he draws a line. And he says, if you're with God, get over here. And not many people come. But a, one big group of people come, and that's the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi demonstrates that even though they have this impulsive anger side of them, they are faithful. And they come, and he says, okay, Levites, grab your swords. And he wipes out 3,000 people that day of their own tribe, to clean house of sin. And the beauty of family, if you will, is that it's just not a tool of God for all of us. And a lot of times we want to look back at some of our family lineage and go, dude, I am so messed up and here's why. When a lot of times some of that, quote, messed up stuff that God is allowed to be as part of your dad or part of your mom is actually a means of shaping you and actually a means of your part of ministry. Now, it's not to excuse any anger impulse that you might have and go, well, that's godly, that's why. But it is to say that God certainly can use it as a tool for his glory. And the Levites, we see, is what Moses ultimately becomes. The Levites, because of their faithfulness in that moment, become the great priestly tribe of Levites. And they end up being the ministers of what is the mediation between God and man, and it's through the priest, all through the Old Testament. And they're the ones that guard that relationship, to make sure the relationship is right. And that ultimately is pointing to our high priest, the great priest, who is Jesus, right now represented by Moses. And Moses is in many ways this deliverer, this angry, broken guy who is used to deliver his people, by which God can restore relationship to his people. And so there is glory in that family. There is you know, joy and blessing in that family, even in the midst of the, the brokenness and the, and, the, and the anger, if you will. So he goes on, and the birth of Moses occurs. And it says Moses is born, and 
in many ways, the nation of Israel is born at the same time. His mother already has two kids. She has uh, Aaron, who's probably about three years old at this time, and she has Miriam that's about seven. And he is born as what they say a fine child. And so we think, like, he's a fine child, and so she hid them. You're like, so if he was ugly, would she, like, toss him in the Nile, like, the next day? So, no, that's not what it means. The Bible says in Acts 7, when Stephen, his one of the deacons in the church, he's being about to be stoned. Right before that, he gives his one and only beautiful sermon, which is pretty much a complete history of what happened in the world up to that point, all pointing to Jesus. And he says that God found him beautiful. He was beautiful in God's eyes. And the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, he says he was a fine child, he was a beautiful child, simply means that his mom looked at him and wanted to keep him, like any mother would. And so she does. For three months, she hides her son. Acts chapter 7 also says that she was faithful to hide her son. She didn't care about the, she's not scared about the edict of the Pharaoh because she was breaking the law, worthy of death, from the death squads that were coming around. They could easily kill her as they killed her son. And so she places the child in a basket. And the basket, the word used for basket, is the same word that's only used one other time in the Bible, and it's used to describe Noah's ark. And the ark, just as it came through this terrible, horrific place of wickedness, was the one means of salvation that God was in charge of and God was, was keeping in control of. And so the basket is coated with, with pitch and stuff to make it both weatherproof and waterproof and maybe even soundproof. Because she's going to put him in the reeds and the baby could have cried. And so she keeps him in there and puts him on the reeds where I've kind of always imagined that. And they kind of do this like in the movies like Prince of Egypt and things like that where they're like, you know, kick the, kick the basket out in the middle of the Nile and cross your fingers, hope for the best. Okay? I don't see that. I see her uh, not in a hopeless situation, but a situation where she's still trying to preserve her son. Maybe, because the death squads probably came out during the day, maybe she's just putting him there during the day. And she has uh, Miriam waiting to see what would happen, maybe make sure he keeps there. But when you put something in the reeds, it's not going to move. It's outside the current, so it's going to stay there. So there is a, a place of faith, so she's still maybe trying to hide it, but at the same time, there's no guarantees that it's going to stay in those reeds. And so when I really thought about my kids, my kids are three and five and seven. And I don't know how many, we have a lot of kids here, so I imagine there's people who have a three-month-old child. And I don't remember what a three-month-old child looks like if you've never interacted with them, but a three-month-old child is completely dependent upon you in every way, shape, or form. For food, for poopy diapers, for everything, for love. If you leave that child by himself, he will in many ways die, in all kinds of ways. And so putting a three-month-old, her child, in this basket, I can't imagine something more difficult. She places this baby against every instinct she probably has as a mother and closes it up, covers it in pitch, hoping that the crocodiles won't smell it and come and eat this child. Hoping that it will either stay in the reeds or it will float somewhere to some place of safety way down the Nile, maybe beyond Egypt. It is very much similar to what we would see in you know, kind of old culture where someone putting a baby on the doorstep of a church hoping for the best, but in many ways in faith that that child will be taken care of. And so she relinquishes control of the health of the baby, the protection of the baby, every, middle, every bit of control she might have had because she can't hide this child anymore. She probably was able to hide him up to three months. When a three-month-old, you know, baby gets bigger, baby gets louder. Baby's unable to, you know, be hidden in small little areas. Maybe they could have passed the baby off as a girl for some time. 
Who knows? But the fact is she ends up giving this child in many ways to God. And it's a picture of faith that I have a very difficult time for myself living out. And here's why. Everyone's got this, this place of darkness in their life somewhere. Everyone has a situation, something that seems hopeless to them, that seems chaotic, that seems like um, it's out of control. And I think all of us, in a very real way, if you follow the metaphor, have something to put in that basket. We have something. And the world, um, I think, has a very easy tendency of overwhelming us to the point where we just feel like, what am I going to do? And I think it's at that, those moments that our faith is actually really tested. Because it's easy to be faithful when there's no edict from the king to kill what's most precious to you. You don't have faith at all. But when you actually have to be in a position where I'm going to have to sacrifice something here, I'm going to have to step out in faith, it's at those places we see whether we really trust God or not. Because talking about trusting God, which every one of us is really good at, really good at, is completely different than taking a step of faith and really trusting God. Now, we think, uh, I think there's a couple reasons why we don't, or are unwilling to put that thing, whatever it is, is most precious to us in the basket. Uh, one is, I think we're a prideful son of a son of a group of guns. Okay, we really are. Um, by the fact that we really think we're a lot stronger than we are. We uh, we believe, I think, in many ways, that we would rather hide whatever baby we have, rather hold on to as tight as we can, believing that we can actually protect it, when the reality is. If you don't give it to God, it's going to be destroyed. If she doesn't let that baby go, it is going to die, guaranteed. It will be found out sooner or later that she has a boy, and he will be destroyed. I think that for a lot of us, and I include myself in this, we're unwilling to put a lot of things in that basket. Our children, our job, um, our overall finances, our marriage, um, some sin we're struggling with, you know, we think, oh, it's too much. I can't give it up. I'm gonna hold on to it. I think that we have the we think we have the power to control, to fix, to solve those problems. And it's not that we shouldn't work hard and try to do something, but I think sometimes we begin to do everything or try to do everything. At what point do we admit that, you know, what the three months are up and I can't stop from the baby from crying? The three months are up and I can't hide this thing any longer. The three months are up, and I can't control the situation. And I think at some point we have to admit that what we've been doing is not enough, and what we've been doing in the past won't work in the future. I mean, you're strong, and I have met in this church a lot of strong people, but we're not that strong. And I think the biggest weakness we have as a people is that we're unwilling to give it up. And that looks in different ways. Unwilling to, we think that weakness is unwilling to say that, you know, I can't fix it. We think that weakness is asking for help. Well, I don't think that's weakness at all. I think that's actually godly, where you're willing to say, I'm not in control. I'm going to let this go. The second thing is, I think that instead of us thinking really strong and we get prideful, we get really despairing when we look around the world. Because it doesn't take long for you to despair about the financial situation of our world if you just want to turn on the local news right now. Okay? Let, me gear, let me tell you right now that putting my job in the basket recently was the most difficult thing I ever had to do, especially right now. 
Okay? I just got a note from a ministry that said there are $150,000 in the hole and needed by December. Hmm, that makes me feel good. Okay? Why? Because you look at the news and it says, well, the capitalism is dead and uh, the stock market is down 1 million points and your house is worth half as much as it was and, you know, we're all going to burn up because we have no money. I mean, that's kind of what you begin to see real quick, the idols, because people are going nuts. Even us. And we start going, okay, I could stop making any sacrifices, stop trying to, uh, you know, make any steps of faith with anything, and I'm just going to hold on to everything I have because it looks like it's the world's taking all of it. That's not what God is asking us to do. He's trying to say, look, I'm in control, and now I put you in a position of chaos, you can see what's been your idol. Time to put it in the basket and let me direct where it's going. And I am, uh, I'm just as guilty as that, but I think we have a tendency, and I have a tendency, to base what we do in our lives on the local news before we base it off of what God's Word says. And the crazy thing is, is that God is going to ask you to do some crazy things. God's will is not completely rational from the world's value system. If we base all our decisions off of what the world tells us to do, we will never take steps of faith. Because steps of faith means you are going to be asked to put that which is most precious to you in a basket and let it go and say, I'm not in control. And we want to be in control. And I understand that. But being in control of of everything and holding it tight will only result in the death of whatever that thing is. It really will. Versus the life which we'll see. And I think in many ways, we can talk about the stuff we need to put in the basket, but what God in reality wants you to do is get your whole dang self inside that basket. Is take your whole body and just go, I'm in. I'm yours. And I'm going to trust that, although I can't see what's going on in here, because it's all covered in pitch and darkness, that it's going to open up into something that's meant for good. But that's really hard. That's really easy to talk about and very hard. But I believe it's the place of glory. It goes on and the basket sits in the reeds. Pharaoh's daughter's swimming around. He probably has multiple daughters. not unusual. And her, her servants are walking along and she sees it in the reeds. And she says, go get this basket. And we have to understand that, that hey, nice chunk of gum. Um, we have to understand that the idea that the world is also in God's control, okay? God made the Nile. God made the water. God made the crocodiles. God made the reeds. God makes sure that Nile flows when he wants to and it doesn't when he doesn't. He controls everything. And we get so scared of the world sometimes that we create this us-against-the-world mentality, I think. What I mean is that if you're a Christian... You think that your battle is against all non-Christians and that God could never... We need to keep as far as we can away from the world because the big bad world will overcome us versus remembering that it's just a tool. Everything's a tool. Everything's in God's hand, whether it be believer or non-believer. It doesn't matter. And this picture here is amazing to see because you can imagine what Moses' sister is thinking at this moment. The basket's in the reeds. 
if let's just imagine she wanted to stay there, and then Pharaoh's daughter said, oh, shoot, I put it in front of the other reeds. I should have put it back here. Oh, my gosh. This is Pharaoh's daughter. Well, who's Pharaoh's daughter? Pharaoh's daughter is the daughter of the guy who made the edict, the command to kill them all. And you'd think that, you know, if the apple didn't fall from the tree, it's, she's going to open this basket and kill this baby. She's going to go, hey, how you doing? That's it. Done. That would be the expectation. So his sister's got to be freaking out at this point. Because we have a pagan who's going to grab this believer, and what will she do? I think we always imagine the world's going to do the worst things. And when I see this, honestly, this is probably one of the most convicting parts of this passage because this woman, this pagan princess, shows more grace and pity to somebody than I ever do. Honestly. She opens up this basket and she sees this Hebrew baby of which she knows what she's supposed to do. And Miriam runs up. Oh, 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 uh, do, um, do you want me to get? Um, do you want me to get a nurse? Who knows what she could say at that point? And she says, "Yeah, go." As I read this, I think it's sometimes so easy to not show pity to people when they're not right in front of you. To take that which is, let's just for me personally, it's the sinfulness of people. Because, you know, I'm not sinful. So, you know, I don't have any problems. But I can talk about all the sinful people out there. You know, and the sinful people out there. Like when you're sitting in church and I'm talking about sinful people, and you're like, yeah, I'm sure someone in here is really, you know, getting this today. That kind of thing. And I'll be honest with you, and I, the thing that most showed me my pride and most showed me my sin is when my mom chose to be a homosexual. Because it's so easy to talk about them when they're not there. And suddenly it's there and you're like, whoa, so how do I stamp the truth and love this person at the same time? Because it's so much easier if I just wasn't related to them. I could go, yeah, those people are evil and sinful. Let's stay away from them. They're dirty and we should just throw them in the Nile. Okay? Now, I know it's a little bit backwards looking at the story, but this pagan princess shows way more grace to someone who is pitied and hated than I ever do for the people who are kind of messed up with sin. And I think that I read that and I wonder, do I approach this world with disdain or with love more often? Am I scared of it and stepping back or am I showing grace more often? But she shows grace because she's just a tool of God in many ways. And the beauty of how the story ends, she goes and gets, Miriam goes and gets her mom. And because of the faithfulness, the willingness of her to let go, look at her blessing. Not only does she get her son back, she gets her son back for three to four years where she's able to pour love into her son and bond with her son and teach him about where they come from and what their purpose is in being here. And this is, we're going somewhere else, son. And she gets paid. She gets paid for three to four years. And that's it. We're always looking at the worst case scenario. If I release control to you, God, 
These things are going to happen. And God consistently, faithfully says, if you make sacrifice, you will be blessed. If you seek my kingdom first, all these things will come. If we could just get back beyond the seek the kingdom part first, we would see that. I remember, I know like, you turn on TV sometimes and the Christians are all talking about like, you know, plant, sow a seed. I'm not talking about money, but I'm going to use this example. Kayla and I, when we were first married, we, were, we did not tithe at all. We were terrible. And it was because we were so scared. If I don't hold on to my money, nothing will, what will happen? We had like a $400 mortgage payment on a condo. We were both working full time. Okay, it was ridiculous. We don't have any money. So we decided, I remember, we decided, we prayed about it. We said, we have to start tithing. Why? Well, because we're Christians. So we need to start tithing. And so we tithed. And everyone has their different stories. But we let, we let go. We said, okay, we're going to relinquish some level of control. It was dumb. Really, it was like not even a very big step of faith at all. But it was, I don't even remember what it was, maybe 100 bucks or something. Wrote the check. It was like, <clears throat> you know, it's like painful putting it in there. God, you know how many CDs this represents? You know, whatever. I kid you not, that was a Sunday. Monday. We get a check in the mail for that plus some from, I don't even remember where. It was like some, well, this rebate you had five years ago. It was like, whatever. But the fact is, we cannot approach seeking the kingdom of God like, I'm going to lose everything. I also don't think we should approach the God thinking, he's going to double everything I have. But we approach the kingdom of God and approach sacrifice and giving control, knowing that he is in control. And Matthew 6 says, he will give you everything you need. How many times I've read that? I emailed out to the elders this week. Because I read like five articles on how everything was going to financial poop. I was like, Matthew 6. He says, I'll provide. I'll provide. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll provide. Tomorrow's got enough worries for so I'll provide. Okay. Okay. Are we going to believe it? I don't know. I hope so. But the mother's face, mother's faith here in trusting her God in what looked like impossible and foolish and crazy, her obedience resulted in blessing. Now, not only was she blessed in those ways, Moses was blessed. It says in Acts 7 that he was instructed in every way of the Egyptians. And he became accomplished in word and deed. Now you think about the life of a slave where you're laying bricks, creating bricks your whole life. And the life of a prince of Egypt for 40 years. Where you're living lavishly, educated under a phenomenal education system. Learning how to be a general. Hmm, that might be coming handy later. Learning how to be a leader getting the best of food, learning how to be accomplished in word and deed, which I still can't understand why Moses complains about, I'm not good at speaking. He's probably phenomenal. The fact is, he lives a life of blessing because his mom took a step of faith. Crazy one, but a step of faith. Now, to close us out here, a lot of us... uh, have some kind of crazy, hopeless, genocidal situation that we're in. We have a situation that, honestly, we stand and we cry out, you know, it's not fair. It's too hard. This looks impossible. I don't understand. And then the kicker, 
God, I'm going to blame you. You don't get it. You never experienced this. You never experienced babies getting thrown in the Nile. Really? Because the whole Bible is about Jesus. If everything points to Jesus, from Jesus, then we have to see Jesus in this passage, which I think we clearly do. Because we have a God that doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't done himself. Okay? Jesus, the story of Jesus is a very similar to the story of Moses. Now, Jesus comes into the world in, honestly, a pretty messed up family. Not only messed up in the same way that Levi was messed up, but very messed up. He comes in, he's the son of a blue-collar worker, Joseph, who was betrothed to a teenage unwed woman who gets pregnant. Alright? And what's the story they tell? Well, angel came. Oh yeah, I bet an angel came and saw you, Joe. Uh-huh. I've heard about those kind of angels. Okay? You think of all the story. You think that we kind of like forget that that was there. That was there. This is a small community. The small town talk, right? Everyone knows about Jesus. Oh, we know about Jesus' parents. He has to deal with all of that. Secondly, as you go through the Gospels, he didn't grow up in, you know, the, uh, in Orlando. He grew up in Darrington. Okay? He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was the armpit of Galilee. Okay? No one wanted to be from Nazareth. Terrible place. And when they, Jesus starts his ministry, he starts going on, they're like, dude, don't we know that guy's parents? Yeah, yeah, he's the guy, yeah, the angel thing. Yeah. Okay, and where's he from? Well, he's from Nazareth. Nazareth? Does, quote, does anything good come out of Nazareth? He comes in with the, the deck stacked against him, so to speak, with his family. He doesn't have the greatest upbringing in terms of coming in as a king and royalty. Secondly, when he is actually born, he comes in, he comes in the exact same genocidal situation that Moses was in. He comes in, and there's prophecy that Messiah is going to show up. And Herod, the king of the time, of this Judean area, says, All right, uh, wise men, why don't you go uh, see if you can find this guy? Okay, we will. So they do, and they find him. Here's what happens. In Matthew, I believe it's chapter 2. They leave, says, Now when they departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, because the wise men didn't go back to Herod. They were supposed to report where he was. And he said to him, quote, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Egypt? Coming up again? Yeah. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son. So as you see this deliverer Moses, you have to see this deliverer Jesus as pointing to And if it wasn't obvious enough, God sends Joe and his bride down to Egypt so that he can come out of Egypt to deliver them again. Now, picture this, though. God, in many ways, we have a God that is courageous. We have a God that's bold. We have a God that, from our perspective, takes risks. He sent his son in a very real way. He put him in a basket. And he allowed him to go into this world that is messed up. And his son was, in many ways, raised in a kingdom completely opposite to the kingdom of God, where he came from. 
He was raised in a kingdom much like Egypt, a world that's dedicated to false gods and false idols, worshiping everything that's not God. And he grew up as this deliverer with a messed up family, living according to messed up values, experiencing the sin and brokenness of a kingdom. Why? I believe in a very real way so that we could trust that he understands what we're going through. I mean, look at Christ's experience. We kind of like, well, he was like Superman showing up and, you know, he was insulated from all these things and nothing affected him. I don't believe that for a moment. If Christ was really human, he had to experience really human things. And he did. Because we go, oh, you don't know what I'm going through. Really? He was abandoned by his family. He was poor as could be. He was betrayed by his best friends, abandoned by his friends. He was falsely accused. He was attacked by all kinds of people. And ultimately, he was put to death by those that he came to save. Now, in a very real way, I think, not that God is Moses' mom, but in a very real way, he does what he asks us to do. And he does it not because he's taking a risk and he's not out of control. He does it as an ex- example to us because of the fact that he is in control. And he is controlling everything. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to put in the basket? What are you holding on to? What are you trying to keep control of that you are unwilling to give to God? What is it you think that if you hold tighter is going to be somehow protected, not realizing that the tighter you hold, it's kind of like a handful of sand. The tighter you hold that stuff, it just starts pouring out. And if you don't hold it loosely and let God take control, it will be destroyed. It will die. And in a very real way, Jesus, in a very human way, says this, I love this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's about to die, he tells his disciples, just stick with me, man. Just remain here as I pray. Here's what he prays. Going a little further, he fell, fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He says, God, this sucks. If we can do it any other way. If I, if I can just control and just hide my hide this thing longer, let's do that. But not my will, yours. Not my will, yours. And he, in a very real way, gets in the basket and goes onto the cross and is crucified for us. And it doesn't sound like no Superman to me. What it sounds like is a man of faith who says, I'm going to put more faith more faith in the creator of this king who the Bible describes the kings are like streams of water that I direct where I wish. They're going to have more faith in the creator of that king and the creator of the Nile and the creator of everything that's in that water and the creator of the pagan princess and the creator that is controlling all things to the fact that I admit I don't control anything. And as we sit there with our basket, here's what I've been doing this whole week. So, you're welcome. I've been taking all the stuff that I think I can control, pretty much all the stuff that's broken around my house, figuratively speaking, that I tried to fix 
Marriage, I really suck at that. I'm going to give that one to God. Parenting, man, I was a crappy parent this week. I'm going to give that one to God. Because the success of my children, honestly, if it's dependent upon me, I'm screwed. I am. I do my best, but in many ways i got to let go. Uh, let's see, what else? My finances? Yeah, I don't even know where that paycheck's coming from, so pop that baby in there, okay? But the fact is, here's the, the reality, is that we can talk about stuff all we want, but if we don't start talking about our hearts, that stuff don't matter. He really just wants you to take that basket and hop in and enjoy the ride. Even though you can't see anything, even though it's dark, trust Don't be scared. He's in control. He's in control. We take communion every Sunday. And at the core of communion is a lot of things. And one of those things is admitting that you're broken, you can't fix yourself, and he's in control. And we take it every Sunday to remind us because we sure like to hold on to stuff and hide stuff way too long until we break it. And this is just your mind like, okay, you get it all. You get it all. So let's pray. Father, you are all-knowing. You know all the darkness that we're in, Lord. It does not surprise you. I pray for everyone who's here, Father, that you, by your Spirit, will convince us in our hearts and give us peace and joy that you are controlling all things, that we can relinquish control of anything we've been holding on to, Lord. Help us to get into that basket. Take our hearts, Lord. Take us on this crazy, foolish, nutso journey that is going to end up in good, Father, because You are a good God. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. Let our faith be placed in the things of You, Father, Your faithfulness to us and not in the craziness of this world and not in our own strength. May You be honored and glorified by all that we do by our voices we raise today, Father, as we declare that we are weak and You are strong. In Your Son's blood we pray. Amen.